0: How can you be part of a religious community that's straight up behind signs or sees like the church it as suspicious? Trying to hold on. The church seems to be stuck that in their ways exists. when the rest of the Why culture is Why are they being? so obsessed they with gay They keep gaming. trying to give answers, but they don't even be a know part the church questions that are not welcoming. To. To. The church is the most the vocal, political, political, political voice theory, against immigrants. Some churches still don't want to be that worship of the actual people. How can your story, story be good because that is where the church seems stuck in their ways on the planet end up going to hell? It seems like so much of the church is exposing or being a good anti-critical American, thinking, being a good homophobic, too narrow, judgmental, and disconnected from what is truly happening in the real world. <sighs> the church needs therapy. Welcome to the newest episode of The Church Needs Therapy. Now after some great interviews, which I just realized right when I started to say some recent great interviews... I realized I was one of like one of those was me. That was when my friend Phil interviewed me. So I think that's funny. I started off man, we had some great interviews lately. Who did you interview? Oh, I got a friend to interview me. Oh, okay, that was the great interview. But it was good to have my friend Phil come on, interview me for the one year anniversary, and then the next week when I was in California to be able to interview Phil and his wife Jen as they just launched their new podcast as Phil and Jen Wood just launched their website as they announced, which is on their website, all of the events they're going to be doing in the next six months. So for those of you who listened in, if you're in the LA, San Diego, Orange County area, I think they're even doing one event up in Santa Cruz at some point. But if you're in the LA or Orange County, or San Diego area, go to philandjenwood.com. Look at the events they're having. Uh, tune in, tap in with their podcast, and I would encourage you to go check out one of these events. If there's, you know, the Marriage Renaissance Retreat they're doing, if you're in a, rela- a long-term relationship, you have a partner, you're married, I would encourage you to to go there and to learn and to get practical tools and to hear stories about how to partner together, connect with each other, enjoy each other, etc. You can never have too much wisdom or encouragement when it comes to continuing to learn how to be faithful and loving and sacrificial and supportive of your partner. And also, for the first one they have coming up, how to reimagine your life, or I think it's called the Reimagining Experience, is on their website, philandgenwood.com. Go check it out. It's the first one they're doing. Great way to support them in their new journey, but also to receive the goodness that they will be offering that night and for the rest of their events. So last time I interviewed them, I said there's the everything will be made public soon. It's all public. Their podcast, Phil and Jen, go find it and subscribe. The website, go look at everything they're doing. That was a great interview. And also, I did have fun. And I will say, my interview was great too. I enjoyed it. It was good. I don't feel bad for saying that. But for this week, we're off of the interviews. And now I just want to talk a little bit about taking risks. I'm going to actually, I thought about calling this episode. Why faith without risk is an empty gesture to an impotent God. And in parentheses, or why we should take risks sometimes. This is, you know, I do a lot of interviews on this podcast. I do times where I offer my critiques. I offer new ways forward for for the church, for people of faith. And at other time, it's more about our own journeys of transformation. It's our own journeys of growth that I sort of speak into. So I've kind of seen after the first year interviews, I will do my times where, you know, you're taking the church to therapy, you're offering critiques, you're naming the issues, you're talking about a way forward. But other times, there's just new ways of seeing, new ways of thinking, new ways of living that I want to invite people into for our own personal journey of transformation. So Let's begin with this idea of taking risks. My wife and I were in Cambodia. And a new friend we were traveling with got confused because the guide we were with had just asked him if he wanted to blow up a goat. Now, I should probably explain this a bit. When my wife Christine finished her master's degree in the spring of 2010... We went backpacking in Southeast Asia for about seven weeks. So we went to Bali for 10 days surfing. We went to Malaysia for a day and almost slept the entire day in Malaysia. We barely saw anything. Then we flew to Krabi, which is the south of Thailand. Then we took trains and boats all throughout Thailand. We met my wife's parents in Vietnam, which is where they're from. We traveled with them for two weeks. And then we floated down rivers in Laos, we, and we finally made it to Cambodia. And before arriving in Cambodia, we heard a rumor that, and I think we saw some video evidence that there was an old military compound that had been kind of converted into this weird tourist destination. Now, what would a tourist want to do in an old military compound? A sensible person would ask that question. Well, you go there, and when you go to this old compound there, you look at this menu of weapons that you can pay to use. So you can choose which one you want to try out. And I'm completely serious. So since it was not in our budget to spend $350 $350 shooting, in, or to spend $50 shooting an AK-47, or $100 throwing a grenade, or to go straight to the top shelf and blow $300 shooting an actual RPG, which is a rocket-propelled grenade launcher. My wife and I decided we were just going to go with our new friends along for the ride, because we wanted to see them shoot these rockets. So the five of us our two new friends who were from the South, like from North Carolina and from somewhere else, maybe Texas, which explains why they wanted to blow stuff uh, stuff up, probably. Uh, and, and our tuk-tuk driver, it was us five and my wife and I. We hopped in a van with the boss who looked like he wasn't convinced the war was over yet. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like he was dressed in full combat uniform. He didn't speak any English he never smiled. And then we hopped in a van with him and another man to drive into the jungle for 45 minutes so our friend could, you know, shoot a rocket into the mountain or whatever. If you use the guns, you could stay on the base. But if you, if you use a rocket, you have to go into the jungle, I'm assuming, because they don't want to blow up somebody's house. And of course, five minutes into the drive, my wife started to panic because she was convinced They were going to take us in the jungle and kill us. Which, by the way, this is 2010. It's not a great idea to watch the movie Taken for the first time right before you go on a backpacking trip in your 20s. Because anytime something bad would happen, my wife would be like, they're going to kidnap us and they're going to kill us. I know it. Like somebody hops off at the train, the same train stop as us. She's like, they're following us. I know they're going to kidnap us. So for about 10 minutes, we drove deeper and deeper into the jungle with virtually no way to communicate with the boss. And as we did that, my wife's terror slowly started to increase to the point where I stopped trying to comfort her and calm her down because the energy of her fear started to convince me that she was right. They were going to take us into the jungle and kill us. Driving through that ancient jungle with no possible escape, I could see how easy it would be for them to kill us and leave us in the jungle and return back to the base with no trace of what happened. Now, did I believe they were really going to kill us? No. But did the possibility of it make this excursion feel like a genuine risk of our lives? Yes. And by the way, it also did not help diminish our fear that the first thing I saw when we arrived at our destination in the middle of a jungle was a booming gunshot. Like right when we arrived, you just hear a rifle go off, especially after the first thing that you see is an ambulance and a gurney. So you show up, you see an ambulance, then you see, then you hear a gunshot go off and Although I quickly realized after my life flashed before my eyes that one of the workers likes to shoot his rifle in the air to terrify ignorant and naive tourists when they arrive. That would be us. Then for him, that he definitely accomplished his mission. But right after this happened, this is when the boss turned to my friend and asked him if he wanted them to bring out a goat to blow up with his rocket launcher. Because apparently, the goat is included in the $300 package with the rocket. Now, my friend decided, my friend declined the goat, thankfully. He shot his rocket into the mountain. We were all relieved. We returned back to our hostel together, grateful that we survived what is what we can call the goat fiasco. Now, here's my question. Why do all of the best stories have an element of risk involved? Why does it seem like the presence of a threat to our current state of affairs always makes for an interesting or even life-changing environment. Why is taking risks so vital for the fullness of the human experience? Well, in Genesis 12, God calls Abram beyond the boundaries and structure of the only life he has ever known. And he calls him into an unknown future. Genesis 12.1 Remember the first part, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. To provide some important context, a geographical journey like this for someone at, at at Abram's age and at this point in human history would really have been pretty unheard of. People did not simply travel leisurely during this era in the same way we envision much of travel today. You wouldn't just move to Mesopotamia for a couple of years because you heard the music scene was pretty chill. You probably would not spend the summer in Jerusalem with your girlfriends because of the vibes at the Dead Sea. No, you traveled and migrated because you were forced to. Famine, war, massive social disruption. Some outside force had to make the current current living conditions impossible enough that an entire caravan of people, meaning the whole tribe, would leave together and risk their lives to seek out a place of refuge and new life. Leaving like Abram would have had immeasurable economic and social implications for people living during this time. You just didn't do that. Abram leaving was dangerous. Abram leaving would have made no sense to his tribe. Abram listening to this call of God and choosing to move on would have been a serious and a grave risk. This is why the great Old Testament theologian Walter Brueggemann calls Abram's move a, quote, dangerous departure. Yes, Abram was leaving home, but he was also leaving an entire way of life. And not only is this a defining moment in the story of the Israelites, this is a defining moment in the collective story of humanity. All three of the largest Abrahamic faiths, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, along with Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, and Rastafarians, all trace their spiritual, geographical, and social, social social lineage back to Abraham in this specific moment. Which is a quick side note. Do you see that right there? Mormons and Rastas have more in common than you thought. And it starts with Abram. And what is one of the core elements at the center of this defining moment for so much of humanity, specifically and for the collective human experience in general? risk. One of the core elements that makes our lives is risk. What made us who we are is risk. Our lives are defined by the courage for one man and one family to risk losing everything they have ever known because of their bravery to respond to the beckoning of the Spirit calling them forward. The best stories we tell always have a real element of risk, making them what they are. The collective story of humanity took a giant evolutionary step forward because of this great risk. Creativity always involves risking failure. We transcend the limitations of our ego and expand by risking losing our old forms of security. Falling in love only happens by risking and facing the possibility of hurt. Real connection is always made by a deeper risk of self-disclosure. Accepting the wild, unmanageable, and unruly nature of life through the integration of risk into our day-to-day lives is what allows our life to constantly expand with joy and explode with beauty. The incarnation itself, the incarnation of Jesus was God saying to the world, love is always a risk because we saw what happened to Jesus. It's not about whether or not we're going to accept that sometimes we're going to take risks. It's about waking up to the unsettling and liberating realization that life itself is the risk. And every individual risk we take to create more life is us simply saying yes to the universal risk of being alive. See, a decision, a decision, did I say a decision? I think I did say that, right? A decision not to risk is a decision to not live. A decision not to risk is a decision to not create. A decision not to risk is a decision to not grow. Now let me, let, me, let me ask one question. If risking is woven into the fabric of life itself, what is one thing we need to let go of in order to embrace this essential life of risk? Let me, let me jump ahead for a second. Just beneath the surface of so much of our unwillingness to take the necessary risks required to bring forth more life is the fear of failure and humiliation. See, both of these fears are restrictive. Make your life smaller and must be let go of and overcome in order to become a person of risk which is ultimately to become a person of life. You see, the ego relates to failure as if it's death. The ego sees humiliation as the end. And on one level, this is actually true. To fail is going to involve the embrace of some form of death. And to be humiliated is going to prove also to be the end of you. Which raises two very critical questions for us. What is it exactly that dies when you experience failure? And which you meets its end when you are sitting in the seat of humiliation? One of the pioneering voices of Centering Prayer in the West, Thomas Keating, said, quote, The spiritual journey is not a career or a success story. It is a series of humiliations of the false self that become more and more profound. One of the greatest contemplative thinkers of the past 50 years tracks the process of transformation as a series of necessary humiliations to the ego or to the false self. Now, why would one of the most awakened souls on the planet state that humiliation to the false self or ego is one of the most essential uh, essential experiences of our spiritual journey. Well, failing publicly and experiencing a sense of humiliation from the public nature of that failure temporarily dismantles your ego's attachment to its image. If you are invested in and have an attachment to an image of success, perfection, and performance, it becomes impossible to maintain this image when your current reality is undeniably subverting it. So think about it like this. You cannot pretend you are perfect while people can see your imperfections. You cannot portray constant success while others can see your failure. You cannot depend on your performance when it is clear to others that things did not turn out well. While we spend so much of our lives trying to avoid ever ending up in these uncomfortable spaces, the wisdom of the mystics reveals it is these spaces alone that have the potential to free us and make us more real than any other experience. This is why Thomas Merton said, Pride makes us artificial humility makes us real. Merton brilliantly exposes how the pride that comes from our own willpower and ego strength of maintaining our own public image keeps us gridlocked in artificiality. He also reveals the simplicity of how surrendering that pride and opening up through humility makes us real and creates the needed space for our true self to emerge through the space that is usually being occupied by our ego or our false self. The impact of failure and humiliation on the ego is one of the only forces strong enough to pry the death grip the false self has on its image and all of the external forms of success that help hold it together. Which is another example where the worst thing can end up being the best thing. See, by embracing what we avoid the most, we can become who we truly are. Failure is a friend of freedom. Humiliation can be a guide towards authenticity. One of my favorite centering prayer stories about a, is about a nun who tried it at one of the very first centering prayer workshops that Thomas Keating ever offered. And at the end of the time of doing it, she said, I'm such a failure at this prayer. In 20 minutes, I've had 10,000 thoughts. Thomas Keating responds by saying, how lovely. That's 10,000 opportunities to return to God. And of course, that is true for somebody learning, centering prayer, but it's also just true for our relationship with failure itself. When we fail, we have a chance to return. When we fail, we can return to God in a new way and as a new self. When our ego is humiliated, we have a chance to return to God more free than we ever were before while we were still trying to avoid ever being humiliated itself. See, it's not about doing things perfectly. It's about choosing to return when you don't do it perfectly. It's not about not making mistakes. It's about how quickly you can allow yourself to receive a new beginning from God after you make a mistake. It's not about not messing up. It's about learning how to allow yourself to mess up because you're discovering God's grace is more powerful than the impossible standards that you hold yourself to. Real growth is not about managing your life in a way that you never experience failure or humiliation. It's about learning how to trust these two as the unexpected guides to life that they are. So what happens when we let go of our fear of failure and humiliation? We develop the courage to create and love with an unimaginable authenticity. And eventually we make the astounding discovery that failure and humiliation to the ego are the unexpected midwives of our transcendent self in Christ. We don't fear taking risks because the worst case scenario is failure or humiliation. And even when that happens, those things create the space that carries the potential for transformation and for our true self to emerge in a way nothing else can so even when even when you take a risk and it doesn't work out it not working out creates the very space that is needed for your ego to be temporarily dismantled so your true self in Christ can emerge more faith without risks is an empty gesture to an impotent God, it's just uh, without risk, we just believe in God, which is borderline irrelevant and kind of boring. It isn't about whether you just believe in God. Are you taking risks with the fullness of your life as you follow the spirit in and through this world, knowing that is what's going to create the opportunities for you to give yourself it? Even when it doesn't work, there's all of this potential transformation waiting to be born out of that.